Alright everybody, we're going to do something a little bit different. I've not done something like this before. You are listening to James Lindsay on the New Discourses podcast. And what I want to do, I've been going on and on for weeks and weeks telling people that we live in the logic of an essay written in 1965 by the neo-Marxist philosopher Herbert Marcuse titled Repressive Tolerance. I've been trying to tell people the logic of the woke, the ethic of the woke, as a matter of fact, is repressive tolerance. It makes sense of basically everything that's going on. So when we see, for example, as we recently did on CNN, a Chiron reading that, um, what does it say, Antifa seeks peace through violence. There's a logic behind that. I would say that it's a paralogic in the language of my essay about pseudo-realities that I published on Christmas uh, 2020, but nevertheless, there is a logic behind this. There is, in fact, an ethic behind it as well, and I'm trying to make the point to people, trying to get people to understand that what wokeness is, in kind of a very simple expression, is it is the logic of this essay, Repressive Tolerance, from the neo-Marxist philosopher, Herbert Marcuse, written in 1965, just before we saw the outbreak of violence in 67 and 68 and into 69, largely based off of this essay. Herbert Marcuse was a rock star at the time when he wrote this in leftist circles. What I'm trying to convey to people is that this, the logic of this essay is the logic of woke, and that woke is this essay combined with the a perversion, if you will, or actually maybe not a total perversion, of postmodern epistemology. So people who believed in the logic of neo-Marxism and of repressive tolerance picked up the tools of postmodern epistemology, and they took those tools and made it so that truth claims themselves fall within the the, the purview of, of repressive tolerance, which is ultimately a political tract. Um, I think it's very important to understand this. Uh, so I've been telling people to read repressive tolerance. I've been telling people to read repressive tolerance now for weeks, and people keep telling me it's too hard. So I'm going to read repressive tolerance to you. And I'm going to try to make commentary about it to make it clear and understandable. The thing is, is repressive tolerance is actually very long. Repressive tolerance originally appeared, though the essay was first written in 1965. It was, I don't know exactly what the deal with this is, but I know that it was originally put out in a book, or at least it was published again in a book. It says this 123-page book was originally published in 1965, but it's the 1969 edition. Um, So we have Repressive Tolerance as a chapter within this book called A Critique of Pure Tolerance. It was put out by Robert Paul Wolf, Barrington Moore Jr., and Herbert Marcuse, and it spans pages 95 through 137, so it's quite long. Um, I guess that makes it 42 pages long in a book, and it will take a couple of hours to read all of it. So I think we're going to, if I'm going to add commentary and put this into perspective for people, I think we're going to have to break this up into four sections at the least, um, maybe five, to break it all down so you can hear 
what repressive tolerance is about and hopefully make sense of it. It's very important to understand this essay, again, from 1965. My essential claim about what happened through the violence of 2020 is that this logic was unleashed in the world again. The last time it was unleashed was in 65, and it led to violence in 67 and 68 and into 69. The same kind of violence, the exact same rationale behind that violence, perpetrated by people of the exact same political persuasion. So this is the, this is, this is, this essay is absolutely crucial to understand. Before I break into it, I think I should probably give you a little bit of perspective when I say that Herbert Marcuse was a neo-Marxist, what do I mean? When we're going to talk about the, the repressive tolerance, we have to understand that, that Marcuse would have understood his, um, he would have understood this as an attempted solution to Karl Popper's paradox of tolerance, which was written in 1945 in the direct wake of the Nazis uh, and also Stalin. So what do I mean by neo-Marxist? So neo-Marxism is really the philosophy. It can also be called in some sense cultural Marxism. Uh, it, it's the philosophy of the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory, the Institute of Social Research. I don't want to belabor this point. That institute was founded in the very late 19-teens and early 1920s by a group of disillusioned Marxists who noticed that the Bolshevik revolution in Russia succeeded, whereas no other communist revolution was succeeding. And in particular, Marx had predicted that they would take place in the industrial centers like London and Germany, and they definitely were not taking there. The next closest thing after the Bolsheviks was the Hungarian revolution, which took and then failed, fell apart. The Hungarians pushed it back out. And that was the large, the, a character who was very instrumental in that was Georgi Lukács, uh, who was instrumental in founding the Frankfurt School. So the Frankfurt School was founded by Walter Benjamin and uh, Benjamin, I can't ever say this guy's name right. It's spelled Benjamin. He was a, uh, these guys are all German Jewish thinkers with the exception of the Albanian Italian Antonio Gramsci, uh, who met with Lukács and uh, Benjamin and uh, Max Horkheimer and the other founders of the, of, the, of the Institute for Social Research that became known as the Frankfurt School. They met mostly in Austria, although they also would have met in Frankfurt. I don't know that Gramsci ever came. Gramsci was the father of cultural Marxism. He mostly outlined this after the fact. He went to prison. The Italian fascists imprisoned him in 1926. He wrote these prison notebooks, nearly 3,000 pages of his thoughts on what describes cultural Marxism. Those were smuggled out upon his death in the 1930s to Moscow. He had liaised with Lenin and Stalin before he went to prison, so the Third International, the Comintern, uh, the Communist International Party would have been familiar with his thoughts before he went to prison, and then in the late 1930s, they would have got a hold of his thoughts. But nevertheless, the Frankfurt School was formed by kind of Gramsci meeting with other communists who were getting disillusioned with Georg Lukács, with the people like Max Horkheimer and Walter Benjamin, who went on to found the Frankfurt School in Frankfurt, Germany. And their intention was, they had a few intentions, one was to marry Marx and Freud, one was to bring in uh, Max Weber's 
um, sociology, his sociological musings, and to try to make sense of why Marxist revolutions weren't happening. And the consensus that was developing kind of with all of these thinkers in different ways and at different times and at different levels of, of development and sophistication was that the cultural element was relevant more than the economic element. And so in some sense, I think Gramsci remarked that where Marx had said that he took Hegel and stood him on his head, Hegel saying that the dialectical process shapes the ideas of the time in kind of this process, a dialectical process. And Marx said, let's make that material, and he called it dialectical materialism. I know this is a very short introduction, but I want to get to Marcuse. I don't want to dwell on this that I've talked about many times before. The, the cultural Marxists turned Marx back upright in some sense. They made it more about culture and therefore more about the ideas. In fact, about the, the high-minded ideas, the ideas that were the most respectable in society and said that those are the things in Western societies that are preventing us from having liberation from oppression. And liberation from oppression be, wasn't necessarily exactly what they were talking about. It started to by the 30s. Um, but that becomes a very important theme, especially by the time Marcuse is writing in 1965 uh, with repressive tolerance. Also, when he writes in 55 in um, Eros and Civilization, which is one of his more important books, uh, not as important as One Dimensional Man, which was in 64. So this was a big theme for these guys, and they developed critical theory. Critical theory is the main product of the Frankfurt School, and critical theory is a a way of doing theoretical thought that meets basically three criteria. First, it has to have a normative vision for society that is of liberation, and really what that means is being liberated from the liberal order and capitalism and into something like the Marxist or communist utopia on the other side of the rainbow. It has to be able to describe how society falls short of that normative vision in other words, it has to be able to identify problematics or as a kind of in a higher level description. It has to be able to point out the contradictions of the prevailing order and why they actually create oppression where they are alleged to create freedom and rationality. Instead, they create irrationality and oppression. And those problematics have to be pointed out where the, the liberal order, the enlightenment rationalism, prevent the ability to have liberation. And third, as Marx would have it, you had to be able to wed a critical theory to praxis, which means to putting it into practice. Um, so it had to be amenable to social activists and social activism. In other words, whereas a normal theory, a traditional theory, as Max Horkheimer maintained it, would be used to attempt to understand the world in kind of Marx's dichotomy, a critical theory would be used to change it. And that's very important. All three of those criteria have to be met. So this is the milieu in which Herbert Marcuse would have been thinking in the 1960s. And he would have been noticing as communists had applied successfully in China already before the Cultural Revolution there and would have already known, as you can read, for example, in Bella Dodd's testimony to the House on american Activities Committee. She was a committed communist, member of the Communist Party USA, um, where they knew that race would be a very particular uh, wedge issue that would tear apart at the seams of the United States. So this is the milieu in which Marcuse is thinking about the concept of tolerance, and in particular, Karl Popper's paradox of tolerance, which was first outlined in his 1965 very long and difficult treatise, 
the open society and its enemies. So um, Popper lays out a number of paradoxes that liberal societies have to grapple with. Most of these are, are not main text kind of things. They're sort of footnotes. Um, apparently, this appears as a, as a note in chapter 7, the paradox of tolerance. And in, in Popper's words, he writes, um, less well-known than other paradoxes that he's discussing is the paradox of tolerance. So this is Popper, I'm quoting. Unlimited tolerance must lead to the disappearance of tolerance. If we extend unlimited tolerance even to those who are intolerant, if we are not prepared to defend a tolerant society against the onslaught of the intolerant, then the tolerant will be destroyed and tolerance with them. So that's his paradox of tolerance. If we're tolerant against, sorry, if we're tolerant to intolerance that's sufficiently intolerant and sufficiently motivated, it will roll over the tolerant. This is why we have to have armies, even in peacetime. Because all it takes is one person to decide they want an army, not in peace, in, in, to initiate war, and everybody who doesn't have the ability to defend themselves is screwed. This is why you have to practice things like self-defense and situational awareness, even in very safe and secure societies. Because if you don't, violence will come to you eventually. Okay, so back to Popper. So he's just described a paradox of tolerance, which is that the intolerant will roll over the tolerant if the tolerant are tolerant of intolerance under certain conditions. So we go back to him. In this formulation, I do not imply, for instance, that we should always suppress the utterance of intolerant philosophies. As long as we can counter them by rational argument and keep them in check by public opinion, suppression would certainly be most unwise. But we should claim the right to suppress them, if necessary, even by force. For it may easily turn out that they are not prepared to meet us on the level of rational argument, but begin by denouncing all argument. They may forbid their followers to listen to rational argument, because it is deceptive, and teach them to answer arguments by the use of their fists or pistols. We should therefore claim, in the name of tolerance, the right not to tolerate the intolerant. We should claim that any movement preaching intolerance places itself outside of the law, and we should consider incitement to intolerance and persecution as criminal in the same way we should consider incitement to murder or to kidnapping or to the revival of the slave trade as criminal. So this is the footnote that Popper lays out, and you can see what he's saying is that when you have an intolerant ideology and a movement around that intolerant ideology, and it will not listen to reason, then you have a problem on your hands, and we should have the right to be intolerant against that, especially if its followers are unwilling to listen to reason or to, 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 to submit their ideas properly to the marketplace of ideas and to debate them, to teach its followers that, it's, that the opposing ideas are a, say, deception maybe of Satan or of the oppressive patriarchy or of white supremacy or whatever, and then to answer those arguments with violence, whether that, he says, fists or pistols. That's when we have a problem. That's when the tolerant are at a disadvantage. And so Popper argues we must claim the right to be intolerant of intolerance under those conditions. When intolerant ideologies, he says it would be most unwise to suppress them 
when they're still amenable to argument and reason, when they will still be submitted to check by the public opinion. But when they stop doing that, it sounds like something we know, right? At that point, we need to be willing to be intolerant of those things. I read this very clearly as needing to be intolerant of many things. Um, white supremacy in its genuine form would be one. Neo-Nazism, which is kind of what he would have had in mind writing in 1945 with the Nazis, the specter of the Nazis right behind him would definitely be another. Um, but also the woke movement. The woke movement meets this definition exactly. Um, the woke movement is absolutely not amenable to argument. It's not willing to be debated. It's not willing to be checked by public opinion. And it just is able to very successfully kind of flip this thing on its head and use the claim that everything that disagrees with it is intolerant to continue to advance its own agenda outside of the marketplace of ideas, outside of the usual rules of engagement, as has been put. So... I think Popper brings up an important point, and it's a difficult point that liberal societies have to grapple with. Now, Marcuse would have been grappling with these ideas, and he is also famous for a little more historical context. Marcuse would have been, Marcuse was probably the, he was hired immediately after they, after the, the Frankfurt School German Jews fled Germany during the rise of the Nazis. They fled to Geneva and then to New York City, and then kind of spread throughout the United States. Um, most of them took up at schools like UCLA or Berkeley or or Columbia, and eventually Marcusa found himself at Columbia and then Brandeis and then uh, UCSD, and there's another one, another one of these big, I forget which one, um, kind of Ivy League class or high-level class schools, universities. But first, he was actually hired by the CIA, <laughs> or the precursor to the CIA, to analyze what happened with the Nazis and kind of write the moratorium on them and actually to help the United States government understand the Nazis and defeat the Nazis. And so he certainly would have had a good grasp on fascism, um, which he, you, I think we will agree he learned to apply to his own ideology here. So he's writing with this awareness, though. I want to make that clear that he's writing with the awareness of fascism, uh, real fascism, the Nazis, just over his shoulder. Um, and so here we have the text of repressive tolerance, which he doesn't actually call repressive tolerance until a postscript pretty deep into the essay, if I recall correctly, but we're going to read the whole thing. Um, he wrote this in 1965, like I said. And to summarize briefly, although we're going to do this in parts, to summarize briefly, the thesis of repressive tolerance is and I don't exaggerate in the least, that left-wing movements must be tolerated no matter what, even when they are violent, whereas right-wing movements must be shown intolerance, even by violence, even when they're nonviolent. Because his belief was that they, right-wing movements, that which tries to preserve the status quo, as he puts it, or as it's put, I should say, are always the road to fascism. And he, he really does make that case. And so even if they have to be suppressed by violence, that's fine. So what I'm going to do now is start to read the entire thing. Um, we'll do this in pieces. This is part one, I hope, of four, but maybe of five. We'll see how we have to break it up. I don't want these to go really much over an hour each. We're already 20 minutes in, so we'll see how this goes. 
but I think it was important to set the stage and to make it clear. And you will see that um, what Marcusa is doing is deviating from the conditions that Popper laid out and is in fact creating the conditions to where he can create an asymmetry where his side can be as intolerant as it wants and that's okay and everybody else is automatically in too intolerant to bear and is not okay. So he's creating the fundamental asymmetry, the logic of what we see now. So this is you've got the context behind this essay. Hopefully we can get through this in a reasonable amount of time. I will probably stumble. It's not a terribly easy essay. Um, and I'll try to explicate as we go. So he, he dedicates this essay, he says, is dedicated to my students at Brandeis University. So that's where he was at the time when he wrote this. He was at Brandeis. Um, he begins, this essay examines the idea of tolerance in our advanced industrial society. The conclusion reached is that the realization of the objective of tolerance would call for intolerance toward prevailing policies, attitudes, opinions, and the extension of tolerance to policies, attitudes, and opinions, which are outlawed or suppressed. Okay, so let's break that down real quick, because he says this is the conclusion of the essay right from the beginning. Let's break that down. It would, the objective of tolerance, so to achieve what tolerance seeks to achieve, we have to be intolerant toward prevailing policies, attitudes, and opinions, and we have to extend instead tolerance to policies, attitudes, and opinions that are currently outlawed and suppressed. So you're already seeing the creation of an asymmetry. He's saying that basically the society itself is already fatally intolerant, and we need to suppress what's going on now and replace it with something, and we must extend tolerance to things that are currently outside of the range of what we tolerate in order to do that. So you can see the asymmetry is the conclusion of this essay. The fundamental asymmetry that we've watched all year, where bad as it was, whatever broke out at the Capitol on the 6th of January 2021 is absolutely unconscionable. It's domestic terrorism. It's an insurrection. It's a coup. It's an insurgency. All these horrific things. We need to have all these new laws put in place to suppress the crap out of that versus months of people being bailed out of jail and let off the hook for riots, arson, looting, um, property destruction, harassment for, say, Black Lives Matter. The, the suppression, in fact, of COVID policy all through 2020 to have riots and such for Black Lives Matter that were apparently 93% peaceful, if you recall, only 7% ridiculously violent with $2 billion in property damage. Marcuse is saying we have to tolerate that, but we can't tolerate anything from the right that would even approach that, even a thing that happened at the Capitol being kind of extreme. But even, even the speech that happened, say, on platforms like Parler or Parlay, however you say that, um, that they claim, which falsely claim, led to that. Okay. So Marcusa again. In other words, today tolerance appears again as what it was in its origins at the beginning of the modern period, a partisan goal, a subversive liberating notion in practice. Conversely, what is proclaimed and practiced as tolerance today is in many of its most effective manifestations serving the cause of oppression. So he says very explicitly what I just argued there, right? I'm not misrepresenting Marcuse at all. He says that the operation of society in 1965, and maybe he had some points, I think we can concede some of his points 
on that, especially with regard to like civil rights and race. We're very intolerant and needed need to be changed. And in fact, that tolerance in 1965 needs to be reinvented as a partisan goal that has a subversive liberating notion and practice. Subversive liberating notion and practice. Okay, so this is a, the next paragraph is actually quite important. He says the author, it's himself, Marcusa, is fully aware that at present no power, no authority, no government exists, which would translate liberating tolerance into practice. But he believes that it is the task and duty of the intellectual to recall and preserve historical possibilities, which seem to have become utopian possibilities. That it is his task to break the concreteness of oppression in order to open the mental space in which the society can be recognized as what it is and does. Heavy duty here. Okay, there's a lot here that has to be unpacked. I hate having to keep doing this, but we're going to do this all the way through. So this may end up being like 10 pieces. So he's claiming that there is no government on earth in 1965 that has the capacity. I think he would say that none exists now, in fact, that has the capacity to translate what he's calling now liberating tolerance, which is his biased, highly asymmetrical intolerance, his highly asymmetrical approach to tolerance. No such government exists that could translate that into practice. But it's the duty of the intellectuals to make this happen. And in fact, what they have to do is recall, as he says, and preserve historical possibilities, which seem to have become utopian possibilities. Now, let's put back into context that we're talking about a Marxist here. <laughs> He's ultimately a neo-Marxist, I should say. What would he? What would a neo-Marxist mean by historical possibilities, which seem to have become utopian possibilities, mean? What would that mean? It would mean freedom from capitalism, freedom from the liberal order, and the establishment of the communist utopia that was outlined not quite perfectly, but close enough by Marx. He's talking about a perfectly liberated society where what Marx had outlined was that late capitalism would give way to socialism, the state would take over, but everybody would be equal. And then as that became more and more settled as a state of affairs, people would realize that the state is redundant and we would magically enter a communist utopia. That's what he's talking about. It is the task and duty of the intellectual to recall and preserve historical possibilities, which seem to have become utopian possibilities. That's what he's shooting for. And he says that, uh, that it is his task to break the concreteness of oppression. So society is full of real concrete oppressions. The, the ordering of society, the government, the policies, the authorities are, are concretely oppressing people. And the, the goal of the intellectual is to open that mental space up so that this new society can be, so sorry, so that society as it is can be recognized as what it is and what it for what it does, which is oppress people. And so this is the goal of critical theory is to pick at society and show people that their society is garbage and full of uh, intolerance and oppression and thus make them want to have a revolution to recall those historical possibilities that now seem like utopian possibilities because they are utopian and not realistic. Okay. So now you know where he's going. So, so, so far what we have is Marcusa has laid out, this is just the first two paragraphs, this very long essay. Marcusa has laid out the idea that we need to have a very asymmetrical view of tolerance that tolerates 
that which is currently illegal in order to create liberation from a liberal order and a capitalist society in order to head toward what he describes as utopian historical possibilities that are now viewed as utopian. And so we have asymmetrical tolerance in order to affect a critical revolution. That's what he's laying out here. Um, going back to the text, he says, tolerance is an end in itself. The elimination of violence and the reduction of suppression to the extent required for protecting man and animals from cruelty and aggression are preconditions for the creation of a humane society. So we have to have those we have to have the elimination of violence and reduction of suppression completely before we can that's a precondition for a humane society. He goes on, such a society does not yet exist. Progress toward it is perhaps more than before arrested by violence and suppression on a global scale. As deterrence against nuclear war, as police action against subversion, as technical aid in the fight against imperialism and communism, as methods of pacification in neo-colonial massacres, violence and suppression are promulgated, practiced, and defended by democratic and authoritarian governments alike, and the people subjected to these governments are educated to sustain practices as necessary for the preservation of the status quo. Tolerance is extended to policies, conditions, and modes of behavior which should not be tolerated because they are impeding, if not destroying, the chances of creating an existence without fear and misery. I think this is an important paragraph, but not in the sense of the earlier ones. Just to summarize quickly, there was a lot of bad things. There were a lot of bad things going on in 1965. So he's not totally making this stuff up. The stuff he's describing, I think, um, in the typical critical fashion is not being given. It's kind of it, he's describing horrors as left wing thinkers tend to do without giving them their uh, kind of, yeah, but um, there are reasons for that. Not to say all the reasons were good. In fact, many of them were bad. Uh, we're not trying to defend anything like that. But then he equates that with brainwashing people. These uh, people are subjected to these governments, are educated to sustain such practices as necessary for the preservation of the status quo. So we wouldn't want to lose the status quo. Of course, the big threat in the 60s would have been communism. Uh, that's what would have been threatening Western status quos. And so he says that tolerance is extended to policies, conditions, and modes of behavior, which should not be tolerated. Some of that is true, certainly with the race issue at the time. And then he goes a little far with this and says, because they are impeding, if not destroying, the chances of creating, here we are, an existence without fear and misery. Like that's possible, right? Again, he said that people have come to consider historical possibilities, meaning Marxist utopia, as utopian possibilities. But then he describes what he's talking about here, creating an existence without fear and misery. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. There's no such thing as a world without fear and misery. There's no such thing. If you're conscious, there's fear and there's misery. They're both guaranteed. So he has a, he has a very utopian vision. And he says that it's the policies of the, of the age and the liberal society and authoritarian societies alike in the world that are destroying impeding and destroying the chances of creating this magical utopia. And so this is why we need his view of, as he called it, liberating tolerance. And so what does he say about it? This sort of tolerance, wait, let me make sure. So he, I think he's talking about the tolerance of, the tolerance practiced in, in, by the existing regime, not liberating tolerance here. This sort of tolerance strengthens the tyranny of the majority 
against which authentic liberals protested, the political locus of tolerance has changed. While it is more or less quietly and constitutionally withdrawn from the opposition, it has made compulsory behavior with respect to established policies. Tolerance is turned from an active into a passive state. From practice into non-practice, laissez-faire the constituted authorities. It is the people who tolerate the government which in turn tolerates opposition within the framework determined by the constituted authorities. So in other words, he's saying that the, the current society and its governments are cooking the books and making people tolerate intolerable things so that they can maintain their power, and that subverts the very idea of tolerance itself. So he goes on complaining about what genuine tolerance actually appears to be. He says, tolerance toward that which is radically evil now appears as good because it serves the cohesion of the whole on the road to affluence or more affluence. So, because capitalism, if we tolerate the abuses of the world, the capitalists can make more money, and everybody might be able to participate in that society. That's the thing he's complaining about, and he says it leads people to tolerate radical evils, which is some somewhat true and somewhat false. But this is the, this is his his position: the toleration of the system, uh, systematic moronization of children and adults alike by publicity and propaganda, the release of destructiveness and aggressive driving, the recruitment for and training of special forces, the impotent and benevolent tolerance toward outright deception and merchandising, waste, and planned obsolescence are not distortions and aberrations. They are the essence of a system which fosters tolerance as a means for perpetuating the struggle for existence and suppressing the alternatives. He's talking about capitalism. The authorities in education, morals, and psychology are vociferous against the increase in juvenile delinquency. They are less vociferous against the proud presentation in word and deed and pictures of ever more powerful missiles, rockets, bombs, the mature delinquency of a whole civilization. So he's trying to call hypocrisy, saying that we... Uh, we have a society that's overly tolerant of war, which serves the capitalist elites, and we are absolutely crying out about things like juvenile delinquency, which is something that would have been very near to Marcuse's heart. He very much liked the radical, the dissident, and so on. He does have some legit complaints here about merchandising waste and planned obsolescence, but he says that we are being conditioned to tolerate that, which I don't think is actually true. Um, people complain about crap products and consumer protection laws were coming into effect. Granted, this was in 65. It wasn't in the 70s after much of that better legislation started to come into play. But um, again, it's the same thing. Take real problems, complain too far, misdiagnose them, try to subvert the whole order as a result. That's critical theory in a nutshell. So now we get into some deeper stuff. According to a, Marcuse writes, according to a dialectical proposition, it is the whole which determines the truth. Not, so dialectical, I mean, we have, to, this goes all, this is why I keep saying this is all Hegelian. He's talking about the Hegelian dialectic, which Marx turned into dialectical materialism, which the Frankfurt School, the neo-Marxists, the cultural Marxists following Gramsci 
turned into pointing out the contradictions, the problem, the problematics of culture in order to try to break things down. He's trying to find a bigger hole. And the, the belief is that if you get to the whole hole, the entire hole, then you see all of the nasty nitty gritties of the system, then we'll overthrow the system and we'll transition to a new system that's liberating. And so liberating tolerance, which is what he's talking about, is going to be what gets us there. So he's talking about doing the critical theory problematizing thing here. Um, and kind of justifying it in that sense. So you do have to, however, realize that this refers back to that Hegel-Marx, neo-Marxist line of thought, that this has roots that that are deeper. It's not just, oh, dialectic, what does that mean? It means conversation. No, it doesn't mean conversation. It means something much deeper and more profound here. So we'll start that sentence, that paragraph again. According to a dialectical proposition, it is the whole which determines the truth, not in the sense that the whole is prior or superior to its parts, but in the sense that it that its structure and function determine every particular condition and relation. Thus, within a repressive society, even progressive movements threaten to turn into their opposite to the degree to which they accept the rules of the game. Catch that? That's big. Catch that? If progressive movements decide to play within the rules of the game, they turn into repressive movements because the society itself is repressive. So this is a call for revolution. It's saying, it doesn't sound like it, but it is. It's saying that if we stick within the rules of the society, if we try to use incremental progress, if we stick within liberalism and enlightenment rationalism, then even progressivism will become repressive. And you'll notice that in the light of the fact that we're watching that with the woke right now, who think they're enacting this, who are enacting this, that they're going to be able to say, oh, no, 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 it must have just played too much in the rules of the game. And so the er philosophy behind all of this gets to survive. The thing doesn't get killed off. Real communism was never tried. It must have somehow just got co-opted. It must have been woke capital or capitalism or whatever that, that took it over and ruined it. It must have been the fact that the Democratic Party took it over and corrupted it. It can't possibly be that the ideas themselves were bad in the first place because he says within a repressive society, even progressive movements threaten to turn into their opposite to the degree to which they accept the rules of the game. To take a most controversial case, the exercise of political rights such as voting, letter writing to the press, to senators, etc., protest demonstrations, with an a priori renunciation of counterviolence, in a society of total administration serves to strengthen this administration by testifying to the existence of democratic liberties, which in reality have changed their content and lost their effectiveness. Another big one. Another big one here. If you are going to, say, write letters, you're going to vote, you're going to protest, you're going to make demonstrations, and you from the beginning say we won't be violent. We make an a priori renunciation of counterviolence against the state. No Antifa, no BLM revolution, no burning down buildings, no looting. Then that serves to strengthen the administration by testifying to the existence, he says, of democratic liberties, which in reality have changed their content and lost their effectiveness. In other words, he's saying that if you participate in a corrupt system, even your progressive movement will be corrupted by that system. So you have to get out of it. You have to be violent. You have to be willing to put violence on the table. He's already saying that. We're only a few paragraphs in. In such a case, he writes, freedom of opinion, of assembly, of speech becomes an instrument for absolving servitude. And yet, 
and only here the dialectical proposition shows its full intent, the existence and practice of these liberties remains a precondition for the restoration of their original oppositional function, provided that the effort to transcend their often self-imposed limitations is intensified. Generally, the function and value of tolerance depend upon the equality prevalent in the society in which tolerance is practiced. Tolerance itself stands subject to overriding criteria. Its range and its limits cannot be defined in terms of the respective society. In other words, tolerance is an end in itself only when it is truly universal, practiced by the rulers as well as the ruled, by the lords as well as the peasants, by the sheriffs as well as by their victims. And such universal tolerance is possible only when no real or alleged enemy requires in the national interest the education and training of people in, the military, in military violence and destruction. As long as these conditions do not prevail, the conditions of tolerance are loaded. They are determined and defined by the institutionalized inequality, which is certainly compatible with constitutional equality, that is, by the class structure of society. In such a society, tolerance is de facto limited on the dual ground of legalized violence or suppression by police, armed forces, guards of all sorts, and of the privileged position held by the predominant interests and their connections. So what he's saying is that we don't have true universal tolerance. In other words, we must have a biased tolerance if we're going to have a liberating society. If there are things like police that have a uh, gr have been granted a monopoly of a force by society. Um, if the military is still necessary, if we have to train, if the powers get to have force on their side, then we don't, they are not, well, I mean, this is where he says, um, tolerance is an end in itself only when it is truly universal practice by the rulers as well as by the ruled, by the lords as well as by the peasants, by the sheriffs as well as by their victims. And so what he means by that is that the ruling classes, the elites, the police, the military, the National Guard, all of that have to be equally tolerant of the people and everything that they get up to as the people are of them, or else you don't have universal tolerance. Um, this obviously would undermine the idea that the state has a monopoly of force that it uses to um, maintain law and order. So this is a, again, this is leaning toward a very anarchist kind of thing. And he points out, um, tolerance is de facto limited on the dual ground of legalized violence or suppression, police, armed forces, and guards of all sorts and of the privileged position held by the predominant interests in their connection. So he's saying basically that things like the police, armed forces, and guards are in service to a corrupt and evil and intolerant regime and therefore are themselves proof that the regime is intolerant and corrupt. These background limitations, he writes, of tolerance are normally prior to to the explicit and judicial limitations as defined by the courts, customs, governments, etc., for example, clear and present danger, threat to national security, heresy. 
Within the framework of such a social structure, tolerance can be safely practiced and proclaimed. It is of two kinds. One, the passive toleration of entrenched and established attitudes and ideas, even if their damaging effect on man and nature is evident. So we're going to put up with the way things are, even if it's causing problems. And two, the active official tolerance granted to the capital R right, as well as to the capital L left. The active, so let me start it again, two, the the active official tolerance granted to the right as well as to the left, to movements of aggression as well as to movements of peace, to the party of hate as well as to that of humanity. I call this nonpartisan tolerance abstract or pure inasmuch as it refrains from taking sides, but in doing so it actually protects the already established machinery of discrimination. So here you have that there is no neutral kind of thing. You have to take sides against the power or you're part of the problem. Marcusa goes on, The tolerance which enlarged the range and content of freedom was always partisan, intolerant toward the protagonists of the repressive status quo. The issue was only the degree and extent of intolerance. So people who made society more liberal, right, people who enlarged the range and content of freedom was always going to be partisan. In fact, it's left. And it's intolerant toward the protagonists, he says, of the repressive status quo. Never mind the question begging that the status quo doesn't have to be repressive, but he says it is. And that the, the good side of the, is always is always intolerant toward the people that are doing that, the protagonists of the repressive status quo. So the good tolerance, the tolerance which enlarged that range of freedom, he says, was in, is intolerant toward protagonists of the repressive status quo, the powers that be, the, the structure, the establishment of society. The issue, he writes, was only the degree and extent of intolerance. In the firmly established liberal society of England and the United States, freedom of speech and assembly was granted, even to the radical enemies of society, provided they did not make the transition from word to deed, from speech to action, meaning they didn't actually become violent. But this, he says, is going to be the problem with that kind of tolerance. Uh, the next paragraph, he goes on, relying on the effect of background limitations imposed by its class structure, the society seemed to practice general tolerance. But liberalist theory had already placed an important condition on tolerance. It was to apply only to human beings in the maturity of their faculties. This, is, I think, is quoting John Stuart Mill, because he mentions that immediately. John Stuart Mill does not only speak of children and minors, he elaborates, quote, liberty as a principle has no application to any state of things anterior to the time when mankind have become capable of being improved by free and equal discussion, end quote. Marcusa goes on, anterior to that time, men may still be barbarians, and quoting, I guess, from Mill again, Despotism is a legitimate mode of government in dealing with barbarians, provided the end be their improvement and the means justified by actually effecting that end. End quote. So Marcusa is drawing upon John Stuart Mill to say that if we have barbarians at our on hand, we can get pretty rough-handed with them. Um, so that we can bring them into the kind of liberalist range and... Uh, induce them into a society that has these preconditions of tolerance. So going back to Marcusa, because there's a lot here, 
Mill's oft-quoted words have a less familiar implication on which their meaning depends, the internal connection between liberty and truth. There's a sense in which truth is the end of liberty, and liberty must be defined and confined by truth. Now, in what sense can liberty be for the sake of truth? Liberty is self-determination, autonomy. This is almost a tautology, but a tautology which results from a whole series of synthetic judgments. It stipulates the ability to determine one's own life, to be able to determine what to do and what not to do, what to suffer and what not. But the subject of this autonomy is never the contingent private individual as that which he actually is or happens to be. It is rather the individual as a human being who is capable of being free with others. And the problem of making possible such a harmony between every individual liberty and every other is not that of finding a compromise between competitors or between freedom and law, between general and individual interest, common and private welfare, and an established society, but of creating the society in which man is no longer enslaved by institutions which vitiate self-determination from the beginning. In other words, freedom is still to be created even for the freest of existing societies, and the direction in which it must be sought and the institutional and cultural changes which may help to attain the goal are, at least in developed civilization, comprehensible. That is to say, they can be identified and projected on the basis of experience by human reason. What Marcus is talking about there, I know it's a lot of jibber-jabber, what Marcus is talking about there is he says that the conditions that, that John Stuart Mill is out lying, laying out for what a, a liberal tolerant society looks like requires people, if you want to have freedom, you have to have people who actually are able to act upon their own interests. They have to understand who they are and they have to understand what their actual wants are and they have to be able to act upon that knowledge as a rational individual. And his underlying claim, this being the underlying belief of all of the Frankfurt School, is that the conditions of a capitalist order and a liberal society that's regulated don't allow for that. In fact, that everybody's conditioned not to be such a thing. That the the John Stuart Mill's not wrong, but that the preconditions that upon which uh, Mill's philosophy rest don't exist. And that liberal societies are not actually truly liberal because individuals have, as he explicates in many other places, false consciousness. They don't actually understand their conditions in life. Um, So he says the subject of this autonomy is never the contingent private individual as that which he actually is or happens to be. It is rather the individual as a human being who is capable of being free with the others and the problem of, ma- problem of making possible such a harmony between every individual liberty and the other is not a finding a comp- compromise between competitors or between freedom and the law, between general individ- individual interest, common and private welfare in an established society, but of creating the society in which the man is no longer enslaved by institutions which vitiate self-determination from the beginning. In other words, the institutions of society have already rendered man enslaved, and when he participates in those institutions and the things that flow from those institutions, particularly the ideologies they create and the marketing that they push out, then he's not acting on his own self-interest. He doesn't understand who he even is. He's not capable of being free with the others, which is what Mill's liberalist philosophy depends upon. So he's saying that that the society prevents the ability, that liberal societies and capitalist societies have conditions where people who believe they are free are not free. They're conditioned by their society and its norms and its demands and the demands of capitalism to behave and act in certain ways where they are no longer, they're not, in fact, no longer, they're never able to actually be private individuals who are who they happen to be 
interacting in a free way with others. That's where he says uh, that the established society is the problem and that they prevents the creation of a society in which man is no longer enslaved by institutions which vitiate self-determination from the beginning. In other words, he says, freedom is still to be created, even for the freest of the existing societies. And he says we can use reason to determine what direction we have to go in to get there. And by reason, he means his reason, his analysis. That's where this critical theory background that I mentioned before becomes super relevant because for the Marxists, the neo-Marxists, what reason looked like, what rationality looked like, what science looked like, they believed that, that Marxism was the true science and that every other thing is not. That being rational meant going... Being rational within the confines of critical theory, not within not within some cold, detached, positivist view, as they would put it, but rather within an understanding that, that uh, of critical theory, where liberation is the is possible and is the goal, and that's what he actually says. He says um, the direction in which it must be sought and the institutional and cultural changes which may help to attain the goal are at least in developed civilization comprehensible. That is to say, they can be identified and projected on the basis of experience by human reason. And he means critical theory. So this is where he's going. This is where it's coming from. This is what, what repressive tolerance is about. Um, we can continue just a little bit more, and we'll, we'll break this one off, and we'll save it for part two to continue. I don't know how many parts we'll have. But Marcuse goes on and says, in the interplay of theory and practice, true and false solutions become distinguishable. So interplay of theory and practice. What did I say about critical theory? That it has to wed theory to praxis. It has to be able to be put into practice as a social activism. In the interplay of theory and practice, true and false solutions become distinguishable, never with the evidence of necessity, never as the positive only with the certainty of a reasoned and reasonable chance and with the persuasive force of the negative. For the true positive is, this, is the society of the future and therefore beyond definition arid determination, while the existing positive is that which must be surmounted. So the good in society now is actually the problem, and we have to look out to this thing that he called these historical possibilities, the utopian possibilities, to get to. That's the true positive. Well, what we have now that we think is positive is a false positive, and that's the basis for the false consciousness that he believes that normal people operate within and that maintain society and that critical theory must exist to defeat and what repressive tolerance the thesis of this essay must work to overcome. So the existing positive is that which must be surmounted, he says. But the experience and understanding of the existent society may well be capable of identifying what is not conducive to a free and rational society, what impedes and distorts the possibilities of its creation. In other words, critical theory works. Freedom is liberation, he says. A specific historical process in theory and practice, and as such it has its right and wrong, its truth and falsehood. So he's calling to critical theory here, a specific historical practice and theory and, sorry, a specific historical process and theory and practice. Hello, Marx. 
And as such, it has its right and wrong, its truth and falsehood. So he's calling to neo-Marxism being the right way to think and everything else being wrong. Neo-Marxism's vision of society being true and all else being false. The uncertainty of chance in this distinction does not cancel the historical objectivity, but it necessitates freedom of thought and expression as preconditions of finding the way to freedom. It necessitates tolerance. However, this tolerance cannot be indiscriminate and equal with respect to the contents of expression, neither in word nor in deed. It cannot protect false words and wrong deeds which demonstrate that they contradict and counteract the possibilities of liberation. Such indiscriminate tolerance is justified in harmless debates, in conversation, in academic discussion. It is indispensable in the scientific enterprise, in private religion. But society cannot be indiscriminate, where the pacification of existence, where the freedom and happiness, where freedom and happiness themselves are at stake. Here, certain things cannot be said. Certain ideas cannot be expressed. Certain policies cannot be proposed. Certain behavior cannot be permitted without making tolerance an instrument for the continuation of servitude. Powerful paragraph right here, okay? Powerful paragraph. We will wrap this this one up here, this uh, volume of our exploration of repressive tolerance. So let's unpack that paragraph and close this up. Um, and we'll get to section two, uh, volume two or whatever next time, part two. So what he's saying is that... Um, you have to have freedom of thought and expression as preconditions of finding the way to freedom. But his claim, the critical theory claim in general, is that you can't have freedom of thought and expression in a society that is itself already repressive, that is in a society that is itself already biased, in a society itself that is already problematic. You have to be outside of that. That necessitates tolerance, he says. So this is where you get to the crux of repressive tolerance. I'm going to reread part of this paragraph, and we're going to take it as we go. This tolerance cannot be indiscriminate and equal with respect to the contents of expression, neither in word nor in deed. It cannot protect false words and wrong deeds which demonstrate that they contradict and counteract the possibilities of liberation. Does that sound like what Twitter did last week? or two weeks ago or whatever it was, does that sound like we have to remove all of the the MAGA accounts and maybe the QAnon accounts and maybe basically everybody who is connected to pushing right-wing conspiracy theories as they've been branded? It's exactly what that is. It's exactly what that is. It cannot protect false words and wrong deeds which demonstrate that they contradict and counteract the possibilities of liberation that would include anything that can be labeled as racist because that would prevent racial liberation. That would include anything that could be construed as sexist or transphobic or homophobic because that would prevent those liberations. Tolerance to produce liberation cannot protect false words and wrong deeds according to the logic of these guys. Remember, that's his logic that we're going to use. Cannot protect false words as they define false and wrong, as they defined wrong, and wrong deeds, which demonstrate that they contradict and counteract the possibilities of liberation. Such indiscriminate tolerance, in other words, equality, free speech, actual free speech. He says it's justified in harmless debates and conversation and academic discussion. 
And in fact, it's indispensable, he says, in the scientific enterprise and in in private religion. But society is a different matter, he's what he's pointing out. In society, society cannot be indiscriminate because there are consequences. It's not an academic enterprise when you're in society. So he says society cannot be indiscriminate. In other words, it cannot be equal in its application of tolerance and free speech. Cannot be indiscriminate where the pacification of existence, where freedom and happiness themselves are at stake. Somebody might be traumatized by your speech. Somebody might be harmed by your speech. Somebody might feel bad. Somebody might feel oppressed. Somebody might feel excluded. You can't use indiscriminate tolerance there. You can't have balance and freedom there. You have to repress one side of the story because freedom and happiness, the pacification of existence. You've heard the the, the different activists say that people are erasing their very existence. Well, here you go. When those are at stake, here, he says, certain things cannot be said. You have to censor. Certain ideas cannot be expressed. They must be censored. Certain policies cannot be proposed. Certain behavior cannot be permitted without making tolerance an instrument for the continuation of servitude. In other words, the awful, repressive, terrible society that we all live in will keep going the way that it is. If we are allowed to have balanced free speech. We are seeing then the birth, again, the irony here, is that Marcusa works for, the, for the, the predecessors to the CIA to understand the intolerance of the Nazis and how it worked, and here you see him basically applying the same mentality to his stupid liberation ideology that isn't going to work, that he recognizes is the task of the intellectual to recall, he says, certain historical possibilities that have been regarded as utopian possibilities. In other words, liberation from all misery and oppression and suffering. He and his, the critical theorists, will become the determiners of right and wrong, of truth and falsehood. And they are going to use that to determine which speech must be allowed which action must be allowed, even if it's outside of the legal range, and which speech and action and policy are absolutely not allowed. This is the logic of the world we live in today. So this is why this essay is so important. I hope, you know, we're not very far into it, but I hope I'm bringing it to life and making clear what Marcuse was about and how this has become the logic of the left for the past I guess, what are we at now from 1965 to now? You can do the math. 65 years. Um, 66 years maybe, depending on what month. This has been the logic of the left since this essay was written. And this is the, when you hear people talk about the so-called ratchet, that everything moves left and it doesn't move back right, and it moves left and it doesn't move back right. This is how. Absolute intolerance of that which might move the story right absolute demand for maximum tolerance and acceptance of anything that might move it left, including riots. In defense of looting was a book. We had the vice president now of the United States defending, asking to bail out rioters, We saying that these riots won't stop, that they're for justice, that the fact that we're in a pandemic doesn't matter because they're for justice and that racism, a form of oppression, of servitude, is a bigger problem. This is the logic of now. Repressive tolerance is the logic of now. This was our first uh, 
part of breaking down, reading through and breaking down this entire essay. I hope you will, uh, I hope it was helpful. And I hope you will join me with the second and subsequent parts. I hope I can do it in five. We'll see what happens. I get kind of worked up. Um, maybe six parts. We'll see four to six parts. Hope you will join me for the rest of them. And until next time, start looking, open your eyes, start looking. Can you see the logic of repressive tolerance happening in the world? Can you see this asymmetry? Because I keep pointing out the capital wasn't the story. The asymmetry is the story. The riots, in fact, over the summer weren't the story. The asymmetry is the story. The asymmetry is repressive tolerance. Can you see it? Can you learn to identify it? Can you learn to explain where it comes from? Can you understand why it's wrong? And can you start to articulate again why we need actual equality, why we need genuine tolerance in line with what Popper was outlining, which would disavow tolerance for the woke, as well as for white supremacists, as well as for other fascist types? Can you see it? That's your goal. Start looking, try to understand, try to see repressive tolerance where it is. We'll pick up with more of the essay next time. Thanks for hanging out.